you are beautiful and the greatest display of your beauty and your love uh, came on the cross and then a few days later at the resurrection and we see the magnificence of your love uh, for your son for us that you would give your son to die for us as our substitute we love you and now every aspect of who you are is beautiful to us and so we thank you this morning for letting us gather together as a local body of believers and i pray as we open your word and study your word that you would encourage us once again with who you are and what you've accomplished and how we can live in light of that now i pray all these things in jesus name amen you may be seated Take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. So as I was getting ready for this and, and studying through this last part of chapter 3, I just decided, you know what? It would probably not be a productive use of my time to learn how to pronounce so many of the names uh, in this list. Uh, usually I try to do that. There's a bunch of them. And so... I thought we would do something a little different, and maybe it would be better if you could just listen to someone else read them uh, this morning. And so listen and follow along, uh, and uh, as you hear this, some of you might even recognize the voice of the person who's reading our text this morning. So follow along. Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph the son of Heli, the son of Matthat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jenna, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathiah, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Meah, the son of Mattathiah, the son of Simeon, the son of Joseph, the son of Judah, the son of Joannes, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmodam, the son of Ur, the son of Josi, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Matthat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonan, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Menan, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Cainan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Muhaluliel, the son of Cainan, the son of Enash, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. You can thank me later for not spending 40 hours trying to learn all of those this week. Those of you that didn't recognize that voice, talk to one of your country music fans, all right? They can fill you in. So what you just heard there 
was what we call a genealogy. That is a record or a tracing of one's ancestry. You can do that today, by the way, uh, online. A lot of you, you can go Ancestry.com, and if you're old like me, you can find printed copies of your genealogy record. Uh, this one that I'm holding in my hands is called the Wagler Family History, and my name is in here on page 96. And I can look and I can see at least some of my ancestors back uh, from my parents to my grandparents and so on and so forth. That is what we see Luke doing here in chapter 3. He's starting off with Jesus, and he's tracing his ancestry all the way back to the first person ever created, this guy named Adam, and then back to God himself. Now, a little bit later, we're going to talk about what the importance of that son of Adam, son of God are, but at least consider this. Nowhere in this list does Luke ever say, now these are real people, but once you get here, the rest of these people are just figurative. They're just stories. He doesn't say that. The assumption is that these are all real people with all real stories and with real human lives. Not everybody in our world believes that. But Luke believed it, and Paul believed it, and Jesus believed it. And so I think the easiest explanation for all of these names here is that they really existed. And they form a traceable ancestry and an explanation uh, for the human race. I also want you to know something else about this list. All of those names that you heard read, all of those names that you see there in front of you in the text, except for Jesus himself, The only reason any of those names exist on that list is a matter of the grace of God. The same could be said, by the way, of all the names that exist in this book. Only because of the grace of God. How so? Well, because beginning with Adam... And all the way down through the supposed father of Jesus, Joseph, all of the names on this list, all of the names in that book that I was just holding you are names and lists of sinners. Right? They're all sinners. Beginning with the first Adam, the guy listed there in verse 38, um, Adam, all the way down through are sinners. We know that Adam, back in the Garden of Eden, disobeyed God, and everybody following him inherited that sin nature. Seth, Enos, on down the list. And God had told Adam, if you sin, if you disobey me, you will surely die. And God held that promise. The day that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree, they died spiritually. Now, God delayed their physical death, in order to show his grace and his mercy to them. But they died spiritually, and every person after Adam, all the way down, including me and you, are born with a dead spirit. And so the Messiah that comes along in verse 23, he comes along and he was the only person on that list to live sinlessly. And he was willing to give his life 
as a substitute for me and you. We sang earlier, he died on a cross. He rose again on the third day. He proved his sacrifice was enough to defeat death. And so today, you and I can know the grace of God if we repent of our sin and if we by faith believe on Jesus Christ. That is the grace of God. And so in God's infinite grace, he allowed all of the folks on this genealogical record to be part of his plan to bring his son into the world. That's grace because none of these guys deserve to be used that way. Everybody on this list is broken in some way, is sinful, is, is beat down, is, has a, a failure. And yet, in the mysterious plan of God, he designed that he would use sinful people to bring about his perfect redemption. That is nothing short of the grace of God. So here's what I want to do this morning. I would like to take this list of names and go down through. We don't know everything about every name that's listed here. In fact, most of the names listed here, this is the only thing we know about them. Their name is in this list. But some of them on this list show up in other places in Scripture. And we know a bit more about them. And so I want to take few, I just picked a few of them, and I want to encourage you that God can and he does use sinners in amazing ways in his kingdom. Why does he do that? Well, he does it to bring glory to himself. God could have just zapped his son into the world, saved whoever he wanted to save, and just take them all back to heaven and be done with the whole thing. But instead, he chooses to work through the lives of of sinful men and women proving that he is capable of using all things, even the created things, to carry out his will and to bring him glory. That is God glorifying, and maybe even in more spectacular ways than if he would have just done it all himself. So let's, let's glance through some of these. Let's start with a, a name that appears in verse 27. A guy named Zerubbabel. Now, on the screen, you can see the list of all the names. And they're circled up in the top right-hand corner is Zerubbabel. I know it's hard to read those because there's a lot of names. Zerubbabel. All right? He's the first one. His name appears in the Bible in the books of Ezra, Nehemiah. He also shows up in some minor prophets, a couple guys named Haggai and Zechariah. We could say that Zerubbabel represents a group of people who were fractured. You might even say they were feeble in some way. Zerubbabel was a part of a group of exiles making their way back to Jerusalem after being taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar. Here's what it says in Ezra chapter 2. We see his name show up here. It says this, Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, there's his name, Jeshua, and Nehemiah. Now, as soon as you see the word Nehemiah there, it should ring a bell in, in your brain because there's a book in the Bible called Nehemiah and it's right there in that book that we're 
told about the rebuilding of the temple of God. God's people had been in exile for 70 years. Now, if you're brave this morning, will you do me a favor? If you are here this morning and you are proud of the fact that you are over 70 years old, would you raise your hand for us? Look at that. All right. Yeah, right? We got a lot of 70-year-olds, all right? Okay. 70 years they were in exile. If you would have been with Zerubbabel, you would have remembered when King Nebuchadnezzar took you into captivity. You would have been alive when that happened. You might have been young. You might have been a teenager. But you would have been alive when King Nebuchadnezzar pulled you out of your place and took you captive into his country where you were forced to relocate. You would have remembered how quickly you had to pack up your clothes how you had to leave your familiar house, maybe your pets, and you had to board this caravan taking you to a strange country where people spoke a strange language. The food was weird. They dressed differently than you. And those would have been powerful, vivid memories. And maybe when you got to where King Nebuchadnezzar took you, you felt beat down, discouraged, disheartened, because you were living in circumstances outside of your choosing. That's not where you wanted to live your life. That's not where you planned for. That's not what you would have chosen. But there you are, and you're trying to make the best of it. God took some of those exiles, including Zerubbabel, and he pulls them out, and he sends them back to Jerusalem. Maybe you would have been one coming back, And he uses Zerubbabel and includes him in the lineage of his son. He uses your leader, Zerubbabel, to help rebuild the temple, to reestablish the worship of Yahweh back in Zion where God chose to dwell. And so his name is included here in this genealogy for our encouragement. And I just want to encourage you this way. Maybe this morning... You are living inside of circumstances that are outside of your choosing. It's not how you imagined living your life. It's not where you hoped to be. Maybe you would have rather been living a different life, in a different place, under different conditions. And maybe you too feel fractured or discouraged or feeble. Does that mean God can't use you? He used Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel was in one of those circumstances. By his grace, he can use you too. Let's look at another name on this list. A guy named David, verse 31. This, of course, is the mighty King David. This is the the big guy. This is the one described as a man after God's own heart. David penned a number of the psalms that we love and we use. Actually, we set a lot of them to our own music today. He's described as the great king of Israel. He, he brought stability and prosperity uh, through God-centered approaches uh, to life. It was to David that God promised, your lineage will never end. There will always be a king from your lineage on the throne. But in many ways, this David was also an abject failure in parts of his life. His most famous failure came in the form of adultery with a lady named Bathsheba. 
And when David should have been out leading the troops, here's what we read about David in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Uh Uh-oh, that's a bad idea. Verse 2 goes on to say, It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. He saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David should have walked away, but he didn't. And that infamous look started a cascade of events that ended up with Bathsheba getting pregnant, David having her husband Uriah murdered to try to cover his tracks, and eventually David gets confronted by the prophet Nathan, and Nathan, and Nathan's famous words, you are the man, ring through the pages of time. David, of course, was pierced in his heart, and he penned one of the most beautiful psalms, Psalm 51. It was his psalm of confession and repentance. It's a model psalm uh, for anyone caught in sin. But his sin did have consequences. That, That young boy that was conceived with Bathsheba ended up dying. Tragic consequences to a tragic choice that David made. And maybe some of you here this morning feel a lot like David. You feel like a failure. Maybe you've failed God a little, or maybe you've failed God a whole lot. Maybe you've committed adultery. Maybe you're just caught in a web of pornography or fornication. Maybe you've given your life to drugs or drunkenness or some other addiction. And I don't know what you've done. I don't know how you've done it. I don't know who you've done that with. But hear this. God's grace is big. He's willing to forgive the failures. He's willing to use them for his own purposes. He does that and he shows us that by including this sinner, David, in the lineage of his son. God can use the fractured, and he can certainly use the failures. God can also use what I'm calling the filthy, those that are involved in in filthy things. There are two names uh, that are kind of behind the scenes of this list. Um, In fact, there are two ladies' names that don't show up here, but they show up in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, And they're connected with a guy that's here in verse 32, a guy named Boaz. Boaz, okay? We actually know quite a bit about Boaz because the book of Ruth uh, that's contained in your Bible uh, tells us a lot about Boaz. Well, there's something we can learn about Boaz from Matthew's ancestry log. Matthew says in Matthew 1 verse 5, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Rahab is Boaz's mother. 
you remember anything about Rahab? Let me refresh your memory. In Joshua chapter 2, it says this, Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab. And they lodged there. The house of what? It's the house of a prostitute. Boaz's mother is a redeemed prostitute. Think about that. A woman who apparently ran a brothel eventually finds her name in the Bible and in none other than the genealogy of the very Son of God. If that isn't grace, I don't know what is. That's grace. We're not told how Rahab exactly became a follower of God, but we do know that she assisted some spies who were there in Jericho. Uh, They eventually spared her life when Jericho's walls came tumbling down. And somewhere in there, she professed to follow Yahweh, and and she did it with amazing uh, fortitude. I don't know how many of you were here a few weeks ago, but we had some ladies here from a ministry called Prodigal's da- Prodigal Daughters. Uh, they are a local ministry that we support uh, here in Sarasota and Bradenton. It's a residential home, and they take women into that home, women and children, uh, women who are suffering from bondages to alcoholism, drugs, uh, human trafficking, abuse, etc. It's just fascinating to me uh, to listen to those women talk about how far their lives had gone, how far they were, how much they were willing to do uh, with their money and with their bodies uh, just to get the next fix, just to get that next drink. And they come to prodigal daughters thinking, I am beyond fixing. I, I am damaged goods. I'll never be able to be loved again. And there they find the love of Jesus and they're changed. The shame is gone. The guilt is gone. And God is now using them to raise up their children in a completely different way. Friend, you are never beyond the reach of God's grace. Ever. If he can save Rahab and use her He can save you and use you. There's another lady mentioned in Matthew 1, verse 5, connected to Boaz. And it says, Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Ruth, that's that's the book of the Bible. Uh, That's where we see the whole story of Ruth. Ruth was a foreigner. Ruth was not a Jew. Here's what the book of Ruth says about her. Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. That's where Ruth is from. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the name of their two sons were Malan and Chilean. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab, and they remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, 
and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. There she is. And they lived there about 10 years. We won't go into all of the story of Ruth. You can go back and you can read that on your own. But here's the amazing thing about the sovereign grace of God. God used a famine to drive Naomi and her husband Elimelech into a foreign country so that he might save Ruth's heart and bring her back to be in the lineage of his son Jesus. If you go back and read the story, there's all kinds of death and tragedy and seemingly circumstantial events that bring Ruth back into Israel where she eventually marries Boaz and it continues on in this kingly ancestry of Jesus. A foreigner shows up in the genealogy of Jesus. Now, I want to challenge us this morning who grew up as, as good Mennonites. Okay, Here's what I mean by that. Uh, I grew up hearing talk about our people and those people. Our people, the Mennonites, and those people, the English. You chuckle because you've heard that too, right? We can rub shoulders with the English. We might work with the English. We might go to school with the English. But when it came to church and sharing the gospel and inviting those people into our church, well, it was just... We need to be careful. If we bring too many of those people into our church, it's going to change. It's going to be different. It's not going to stay the same. And yet I look at Ruth and I say, Ruth was one of those people. Ruth was a foreigner. She was different. She had a different past. She served a foreign god. And yet God chose to save her and bring her back into the family. And so I look at us in Sarasota in 2022 and I say, you know what? Instead of looking out there and seeing those people, why don't we go out there and bring them so together we are God's people? It's not just autos and millers and mayors. It's a lot of others. It's called into Christ. God can use the fractured. He can use the failures. He can use the filthy. He can use the foreigners in his grace. Just a couple more. God can use the fearful. We read about Abraham. Abraham shows up in this list. He's the father of the Jewish faith. Abraham is a magnificent guy. He's the ancestor. In fact, even in the New Testament, the Pharisees and the religious leaders look back to Father Abraham. We sing a song with our kids called Father Abraham, right? Father Abraham was the source of their existence and the substance of the covenant promises that they have with God. And yet, as great as Abraham was... He struggled with fear. Listen to what he did in Genesis chapter 12. When Abraham was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, 
I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they'll let you go. So say that you are my sister so that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. Do you understand what Abraham just did there? Because he's scared for his life, he is asking Sarah to lie and to put herself in a place where she could have been taken by an Egyptian man, forced to marry that man, forced to bear children with that man, and that man wasn't even her legal husband, all in order to save Abraham. What was he going to do if that happened? I, I cannot imagine looking at my wife and saying, you know, honey, I love you. You're beautiful. Could you just lie for me to save my life? I, I think she would look at me and say, why don't you act like a man and protect me? Right? Abraham was fearful. And yet with all of his flaws and with all of his failures, he appears here in our genealogy in verse 34. God's grace was able to redeem Abraham's sin. By the way, nothing bad happened to Sarah uh, because God intervened and he exposed Abraham's lie. She was protected in spite of her husband's bad behavior. And I just want to encourage you wives here this morning. Even if some of you are living with disobedient husbands, this example of Sarah actually shows up in 1 Peter chapter 3 to show you that God can protect you even when your husband is acting the fool. If you're following Jesus, he can protect you. God can use the fearful. One last one. God can use even the few. Moving backward in time, notice that Noah is mentioned in verse 36. Noah. Noah was one of only eight people on the entire earth that was spared when God sent a worldwide flood to destroy the wickedness in the world. Only one of eight people. God's grace can use the few. For some of you, you go to a school or you go to a college in which you sometimes feel like or might actually be the only Christian there. The only Christian among a flood of wickedness. You might be the only one that you know who goes to church or even considers faith to be something of importance. Just know this. If God could use Noah as one of the few his grace is sufficient to use you too. For decades, Noah had to tolerate the mocking and the taunting of people who kept asking him, why are you building this ark? What kind of a nut job are you? Right? But sure enough, the flood came and Noah and his family were saved. I don't know how long God might ask you to tolerate the mocking of a pagan environment. But if he can use faithful Noah he can use two. The number of people isn't what matters. It's your faithfulness that does. Stay faithful. 
and watch how God can use you. Which brings us kind of to the end of this list. If God can use the fractured, the failure, the filthy, the foreigner, the fearful, and the few, guess what? God can use you too. Why is that? How do I know that? Because Jesus is the Son of God, and the second Adam did something for you. Look back at verse 38. In this lineage, Luke notes that Seth is the son of Adam. Remember that that Adam was the first Adam. It was that Adam who, in the perfect garden, with a perfect relationship with God, blew it. Satan came and he tempted him and him and his wife Eve, they sinned and they plunged all of humanity into sin. But hundreds of years later, Jesus is born and Jesus is referred by Paul as the second Adam. And Jesus too was tempted. We'll look at the next time. He was tempted by Satan, this time in the wilderness. But unlike the first Adam, the second Adam withstood the temptation. He stood on the truth of God. He did what the first Adam could not do. He lived a sinless life. And because he is the son of God, Luke can conclude chapter 3 by saying, this one, the second Adam, was able to bear the weight of the punishment for the world's sin. And as the perfect God-man, he is able to redeem any person, I repeat, any person, and use them for the kingdom of God because of his great work. Why does Luke include a genealogy of Jesus? He includes it as a testament to God's amazing grace. If this lineage would carry on to today, you would show up there somewhere because you came from Adam, first Adam as well. You can be part of this spiritual family if you repent of your sin and you by faith believe in Jesus Christ. And he will use you, I promise. Let's stand, pray for that to happen. God, you are amazing. Your grace is amazing. We are not amazing in the sense that we, like every other name on this list besides Jesus, are all sinners. By our nature and by our own choosing, we have disobeyed you. We have rebelled against you. And yet, through your perfect unfolding plan of redemption, you use created men and women, redeemed them through the promise of your Messiah to bring about the second Adam, the one who would come, live, die, and rise again to be our glorious Messiah and Redeemer. And it's on Jesus that we look and we say, you, he is beautiful. Father, we put our trust and our faith in Jesus Christ. We, by faith, believe in him. We repent of our sin and trust him. And because of Jesus now, you are able to take our broken and fractured and fearful and failing lives and use them 
to further your kingdom, to spread your gospel. You call us to believe on you and then to take your name into the four corners of the earth so that one day every tribe and language and tongue, nation, will be standing around the throne worshiping you. What an amazing privilege, all because of your grace. Thank you. In Jesus' name.